Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts. Please remember with each topic we discuss that your horse is an individual and you should seek professional advice before implementing any strategies. Today, Nancy and I are going to be discussing the principles of learning theory in equitation. And this is from the website International Society for Equitation Science, um, ISES, and it's equitationscience.com. They have loads of amazing information, loads of um, resources and different conferences that they hold each year as well. So definitely recommend checking them out. But one of the really nice things they have is they discuss 10 training principles. So these are human and horse welfare depends on these training methods, essentially. And there are a couple of ways that we can kind of manage and demonstrate these. So I'm going to just list them one to 10. Um, nice and quick. And then Nancy and I will um, start at the beginning. So the first one is regard for human and horse safety. The second principle is regard for the nature of horses. The third principle is regard for horses' mental and sensory abilities. The fourth is regard for current emotional states. The fifth is correct use of habituation desensitization, calming methods. The sixth is correct use of operant conditioning. Seventh, correct use of classical conditioning. Eighth, correct use of shaping. Ninth, correct use of signals and or cues. And finally, the 10th one is regard for self-carriage. So we're going to look at these a little more in depth, but Nancy um, actually has a little bit more of a background in this because when we did our master's together, we got to choose different modules. And funnily enough, Nancy and I chose almost the exact same modules and we didn't know each other at this point. <laughs> but there's only one module we differed by and Nancy did equitation science, whereas I did um, equitation physiology. So, Nancy, you've got a little bit more of a background in this area. Yeah, I really enjoyed the equitation class, uh, equitation science class at Edinburgh, because in racing, we don't really have a lot of foundation in equitation science. And I really enjoy these uh, learning theory principles because Andrew McLean, came up with a PhD project where he reviewed um, roles of learning theory and ethology in equitation. Now, at the time, he was an event writer for Australia. So from that paper, which I believe was published in 2006 or 2007, um, these theories came about and the International Society of Equitation Science was formed. So um, we'll go through them and talk about them. And we may only do half this episode and finish the other half next week. But we'll just see how far we can get along. 
Lovely. So the first one, regard for human and horse safety. So this is acknowledging that the horse's size, power and potential flightiness present a significant risk and avoid provoking aggressive or defensive behaviors such as kicking and biting, being aware of the horse's dangerous zones. And I think that's something we become complacent with. Safe use of tools, equipment, and environment. Recognize the dangers of being inconsistent or confusing. Ensure horses and humans are appropriately matched. And that's not numbnas and joggers. That is more by ability. And avoid using methods or equipment that cause any pain, distress, or injury to the horse. Um, I thought this, like, I think all of them are interesting and they definitely do make you think about what you're using because a lot of the tools that we use, you know, be it bridles or saddles or, you know, we can have schooling crops or whips and they can be considered um, safe and effective tools in the wrong hands or used incorrectly, these can cause pain and distress and they can cause injury. So I think there is a lot to be said around, you know, me and Nancy have talked about this a lot, but just ensuring we've got correct fitting of tack, that we're double checking things before we get started. You know, don't be in a rush to just throw on a saddle and jump up and um, assess if your horse is in pain. And Nancy, you've mentioned this in other episodes where you always put your horses out into the round pin before you get started. I just put them in my round pin. I don't chase them around or do anything but watch them walk, watch them trot, just to make sure they're not hurting anywhere. And sometimes it just loosens them up for five minutes. I never encourage frantic behavior and we're going to see why later on down the line in these principles. But um, out of the accidents dealing with horses and horse riding, there are usually about 36 accidents per 100,000 people in the USA. So out of those, 64% are head injuries and from falls. And a lot of those head injuries are people that are adults. So um, the one thing for, for me that's important for human and horse safety is to realize they're flight animals. You don't want, they're gonna have quick reactions. And you want to be fit and you want to know how to fall. You want to be flexible. You don't want to land on your head. So, uh, and these are with helmets on. The, so um, I think to be trampled or kicked or bitten only encompassed about 25% of the total injuries. So there, there is a risk with dealing with horses. And if you can mitigate that risk, by understanding the animal, it's better for the animal and us. Definitely. And I think it's interesting when you said knowing how to fall. Um, I That's something that I think risk assessment is something you can get better at, but it's definitely something that some people just do more of maybe. I remember one time we were out riding bareback and the horses got spooked and like you've got little control in a scenario where you're just in an open field and they get spooked. But 
I knew from the terrain of the fields that the horses at this point were just took off. We were still going along with them, me and my friend, um, hadn't fallen off. But I knew by the terrain of the fields that if I was going to bail out, I needed to do it quickly because we were in a soft part of the fields where it would have been safe to fall. And I knew that where the horses were headed was more bog and um, then rougher terrain up from that. So I just had that quick moment where I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to stop them. I know my horse is panicking more probably because we're on them and they've gotten this fright. And I think if I can just bail out at this point, then she won't feel like she's running away from something on her back. I don't know if that made a whole lot of logic at the time, (laughs) but I remember just doing like a careful kind of swing to the side so I could fall off. And it's funny because I think we probably should be taught how to fall off, you know, Mm -hmm. like, if your horse is spooked or startled, this is a safe way to like emergency dismount, essentially. Yeah, it's important to have total body control. And I see many riders that are not in shape. They need to to be flexible. And, you know, you mitigate a lot of injuries by being physically fit and flexible. And, um, you know, you watch the jockeys, they roll. They roll with the fall, and normally a lot of them land right on their feet. I know. They roll right up. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of times where you you are out of control in a fall, but um, if you can, it, it's far better to uh, be fit and know how to fall than to just always be landing on your head. And that's what this study in the U.S. Uh, found is that, Um, horse-related incidents for riders that were not teenagers. They were older adult riders. They had the most head injuries because they did not know how to fall. Mm -hmm. I will caveat as well. Don't do what I just said I did in the story that was a couple of years ago. Well, Don't don't just go riding bareback in open fields. um, Where, you know, there is that potential. Like one of the fields was beside the road and it was a recipe for disaster. So some risk assessment before you get on the horse is really important as well. Yeah. And I bailed once on a, a galloping on a horse and I'll never bail again because I, you know, I, I would stick with it now because they'll, they'll get tired eventually. Now it's different if you're heading for a bog or something like that but on the track you're always encouraged to stay with them because eventually they will slow down and you will be able to pull them up safely but I know it's tough and I had to get past that that panic phase and um but anyway it 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 does help to have a plan and to be fit to be able to um not be so maybe apt to be physically hurt definitely and the only other one I kind of wanted to touch on under this was avoid provoking aggressive or defensive behaviors and I feel like this links in a little bit with recognizing the dangers of being inconsistent or confusing you know if you are having a bad day or you're frustrated and we've said this so many times go muck out the stalls before you go riding the horse you know burn off some of that negative energy 
don't come to your horse some days with, you know, a really frustrated or, you know, angry attitude because they pick up on that. And then you may not realize you're being a bit more gruff with them than you normally are. And little things like, you know, jerking the reins because you're frustrated at them. It's just unnecessary. Or, you know, some people will, you know, give their horse a smack. Again, completely unnecessary to do. The horse is only trying its best for you that day. And sometimes they have bad attitudes too, and that's fine. You know, we all just need (laughs) to be given our space when that happens. Absolutely. And especially the biting horses. I see so many people when a horse is a little on the mouthy side, they tease them and they constantly pick, pick, pick at their mouth or put something up there for them to bite. All that's doing is encouraging that behavior. So um, I, you know, I'm always on people don't provoke them to bite if they are prone to be nippy. Let's just figure out how we can eradicate that. The second um, principle was regard for the nature of horses. So this was to ensure welfare needs. That's lengthy daily foraging, equine company, freedom to move around. Avoid aversive management practices. So whisker trimming or ear twitching. Um, Avoid assuming a role for dominance in horse-human interactions. Recognize signs of pain. Respect the social nature of horses, so the importance of touch and the effects of separation. And avoid movements horses may perceive as threatening, so any jerky or rushing movements. Uh, my eyes, every time I read ear twitching, my eyes are just like, ah, uh, like, why? Like, who does that anymore? I know. You, you just, it just doesn't make sense. But hopefully what this is, really saying is read about ethology of the horse and their behavior, what their needs are, what their social needs are, and hopefully you you understand them. And by understanding them that they're different from us, um, you'll be able to make better choices. Definitely. I would just say for this one as well, if you're new to horses in any way, um, or even if you're not, you've been around horses your whole life, something that is so useful, and you can even print it off, laminate it, put it up in your barn, but it's um, a visual pain scale for horses. Mm -hmm. You can just type that into Google Images, and you see different pictures of horses with different facial expressions, and that way you can learn, and you can look at the different horses in the barn, and you can see, okay, they've got that crinkled nose. You know, it's not always ears flat, Um, So that is really useful for assessing whether they're in pain or discomfort. Yeah, I agree. The third one then was regard for horses' mental and sensory abilities. So this was to avoid overestimating the horse's mental abilities, saying things like he knows what he did wrong. Avoid underestimating the horse's mental abilities, saying it's only a horse. Acknowledge that horses see and hear differently from humans. Avoid long training sessions and keep repetitions to a minimum to avoid overloading. Avoid assuming that the horse thinks as humans do and avoid implying mental states when describing and interpreting horse behavior. Yeah, this one's a good one because uh, I refer to that episode we did on the sensory 
capabilities of horses and whether it's sight or hearing or you know any of them they're so different from us especially tactile stimulation it doesn't take much um for them a windy day might be more prone to set them off um, mainly because of the the them feeling the wind and then the other thing is they're hearing they have um different frequencies of hearing than we do. So refer back to that sensory episode. And, um, you know, people may say, well, every time I'm working with my horse, um, he hits me in the head with his nose. Well, most probably because you don't realize he can't see you there. So um, there's so much that people could learn from just figuring out those five senses. And definitely letting go of this idea of punishment. Like you see it all the time with people with dogs too, being like, oh, I put them on a timeout. It's like your dog does not know it's on a timeout. <laughs> it just knows that you're angry. It can't even necessarily connect the behavior to what the repercussion is. So people being like, no, he's being a nightmare today. He's not getting to go out in the paddock with the other horses or he's not getting to do this. It's like, they can't comprehend that type of punishment and it, it just doesn't make sense. So we need to remove that, you know, how we can explain that to a person. Okay. You lost this privilege is entirely different to taking something away from a horse and expecting them to connect the dots. Yeah. I think too, my pet peeve is long training sessions. Sometimes I will literally only go 20 minutes with the horse because as you'll see in the next principle, you want to use that emotional state and it can be too low where they won't learn anything. It can be too high where they won't learn anything. So um, sometimes you just have to match their emotional energy with what you're trying to teach them and what you're trying to accomplish as a team. Definitely. So that brings us on to number four, which is regard for current emotional states. And this is to ensure trained responses and reinforcements are consistent. Avoid the use of pain or constant discomfort in training. Avoid triggering the flight, fight or freeze reactions. Maintain minimum <clears throat> arousal for the task during training. Help the horse to relax with stroking and voice. Encourage the horse to adopt relaxed postures as part of the training. Avoid high arousal when using tactile or food motivators. Don't underestimate the horse's capacity to suffer and encourage positive emotional states when training. Yeah, I, I love this one because um, I just think that people don't realize what instilling the fear response does that it's just so hard to extinguish that response. They'll put it under the surface at times, but it's one response that always seems to come up to the surface in certain situations. I like what Andrew McLean always says is that touch and food are primary reinforcers but one of the best things you can do is allow your horse to have freedom from fear. Mm -hmm. I think it's um, definitely something that's, I don't want to say a new wave of thinking because it's been 
a long time in the making, but certainly there have been a lot of problems around how we word what we do with horses. So like breaking a horse. And then we instinctively end up with this culture where people think, you know, you have to be tough to Mm -hmm. succeed or, you know, you have to be brave to win. Like that episode we did on being belittled within Mm -hmm. um, the equine industry, if you're not brave. And one of the important things here is compassion and confidence are the keys to winning when it comes to horses. And what winning is, is going to be different for everyone. You may be into recreational riding. You might be into, you know, high level eventing. But to me, winning is when you have a horse that's willing to train and to work and is enjoying it and they aren't suffering at any point throughout it. And then that's where my enjoyment will come from. I think I'm with you, Kate. I really enjoy the relationship I have with each one of my horses, whether they're racing or whether they're retired and here on the farm or even with the the Welsh pony. It's a relationship that matters. And I always tell people that the horse has the largest amygdala organ of all domestic animals. And that's the fear organ that's in the brain. And yet, you can lower their heart rate by just a simple touch at the withers. So that's an amazing animal. And we are able to control that an, an, uh, animal with just a compassionate, uh, you know, just rub on the withers. They really respond to that. So um, it, it's really a matter of having a good relationship and understanding what it is that makes them tick. Definitely. Um, the last kind of quote for that one was high arousal and lack of reinforcement can lead to stress and negative effective states. So as Nancy said, just, you know, being more, I suppose, empathetic and definitely to just reiterate that line, don't underestimate the horse's capacity to suffer. Yeah. And and if you see you, you know, you're out there riding for hours, that's gone on too long. They're just going to be zoned out. They're out of the learning, the learning capacity, just like us on a zoom lecture that goes on for a long time. You zoom, you go out and in and you know, that retention that learning, you have a very, very short time. And the horse will tell you when they've just, they're done. And I always try to end on a good note, make it short, make it positive and end on a good note. And, you know, I've got one that likes to be ridden longer than what another one may like to be ridden. And that may change day to day, but we have to be the ones to interpret that. Number five, then, is the correct use of habituation and or desensitization and or calming methods. So this is gradually approach objects that the horse is afraid of, or if possible, gradually bring such adversive objects closer to the horse. Gain control of the horse's limb movements, so step the horse back while aversive objects are maintained at a safe distance and gradually brought closer. And that's overshadowing. Associate adverse of stimuli with pleasant outcomes by giving food treats, but perceives the scary object, which is counter conditioning. 
Ignore undesirable behaviors and reinforce desirable alternative responses. That's differential reinforcement. And then the final one is avoid flooding techniques, forcing the horse to endure aversive stimuli. Yep, this, this one's important. And this is all under training. And it's so important, the timing of all these. If you're going to wait two minutes to give your reward or remove your pressure, you've lost, you've lost it. You've lost your, your communication. It's the timing is everything. Wouldn't you say, Kate? Definitely. And I think like not rushing the process, mm -hmm. you know, some horses, especially where they have a fear, it's, you're not going to get them accustomed in a day. If a horse is afraid of a clippers, you know, don't expect, oh, by the end of this week, they'll be fine. It really is about giving them enough time and space to overcome that fear. And I think space is a massive one. So like with overshadowing, where you're moving the horse forward and backwards, it kind of focuses their mind on that movement. So they focus less on the fear, which is a great way of kind of desensitizing them to it. But I would say, be really conscious not to close that space and bring the fearful stimulus closer sooner than they're ready. You know, they have a threshold for how much they can kind of handle in a fear zone before shutting down so that freeze or before deciding they need to flight or fight to be able to get out of the situation. Yeah, I love it when uh, there's like a balloon that comes to the pasture and it's a big deal. They're all running <laughs> around looking at it. And then when the wind blows and that balloon goes further from them, then they follow that balloon. As long as it's leaving, they're yeah. push it, act brave. <laughs> they're going to push it out. But if the wind would change and it would come back at them, they're going to take off running again. But it's kind of neat to watch them, even if it's a piece of paper or a plastic bag blowing in the wind. You'll always see when it starts to get distance from them and blow away from them, then they become the brave ones. So it, it's kind of neat to see that work in almost every circumstance. And they just have such an inquisitive nature. You know, they want to, they want to learn, they want to understand because that helps, you know, in evolution and survival. It's why we're that way as well. We want to figure things out so that we can essentially do better and um, I think these are really useful. We'll we'll go over the next five in the next episode, but just ways of improving that connection when we're with horses, not not just for them, but also, you know, to ensure our safety as well, which is something that we often overlook. Yeah, it is. It makes it so much safer if we can understand the animal. And um, I was fortunate enough to get Paul McGreevy's book, um, equitation science and it's what we used as a textbook at Edinburgh and I was able to get it and uh, Andrew McLean is a co-author on it and I never get tired of reading about the operant conditioning and the habituation and, and all those methods because they're, they work 
And once you understand them and get your timing correct, you've got your own kind of communication going on. So, and that's why I like Kate Finner. She understands that so well. So um, I think there's a lot of tradition in equitation science or equestrianism, I should say, that now science is countering that. And I think we have to be wise and be able to learn how to communicate with the horse in the most effective way. Exactly. I could not have said that better, Nancy. Oh, it's a passion with me because before I learned about this, we followed tradition and we forced things and you don't have to do that. In fact, a lot of times that just never works out. So um, it's really neat to uh, have a project and then see yourself making headway. And this horse just kind of blooms over time. Mm. The it's connection really you then make with the horse is entirely different. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm excited for next week. And then I will put a link to the homepage on Andrew McLean's first paper that led to these principles. And I will say the principles, the wording changed from when I took the class at Edinburgh, but the uh, principles haven't changed. Just the way, way they're presenting the information has changed because they're trying to make it easier for people to understand. Perfect. And if anyone has any questions or any requests, you know where to find us. We're on Instagram, conversations.equinescience. And we're on Facebook, conversations in equine science. And if you do want to drop us a voice note, you can do that on Anchor FM and just search the podcast. Sounds wonderful. Thanks so much, Kate, for kind of doing this in-depth one this week. I think it's important. And for anybody, I'll put a, a link to the Equitation Science uh, website. Brilliant. And I look forward to discussing the next five next week, Nancy. Okay. Thanks, Kate. It was fun. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.